that era of parent was strength. Strong like bull. Strong like bull. I crush you. There is so much to learn by sharing your mistakes, by sharing your failures and being vulnerable. That's part of the evolution in some of this is that vulnerability is the new strength. So what's this podcast all about? This financial sobriety thing we're doing. It certainly isn't a traditional conversation about money. There's lots of great people in our industry that talk the traditional game. This is gonna be a very unconventional conversation about those three unbelievably complicated relationships that when you put them all together, you don't necessarily think of them this way, but the relationship that you have with money, the relationship you have with your people that mean the most to you, and then the relationship that you have with the person in the mirror. You mean those three relationships go together? They do, and it's a very complex interrelationship between them. And when those get a little bit out of whack, interesting things happen. Do you know anything about that? We should probably introduce ourselves. Who oh, are you? good idea. Jim Gephardt. And I'm Matthew Grishman. I'm your author of the book, Financial Sobriety, and we are going to have some great conversations, so stick around. Hey, what's the value of a dollar? Well, it's about somewhere between 8% and 10% less than it was a year ago. <laughs> I think we asked the same question when we originally created this content a year ago. We started the episode with that same question, so we might hear it again here in a few minutes. But man, has the world changed in the last year relative to the value of a dollar since we first started having this conversation oh my holy cow inflation the real conversation around it is the value of a dollar and what i loved about this episode is the tangibility factor right 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 and i have probably gone down that story route a hundred times sure in the last year as recently as over the fourth of july weekend where I'm just going to have to get a, a financial sobriety soapbox. <laughs> you don't so have that one when of those I get yet? Up, so when I get up on my soapbox and I give the sermon about connectivity and, and tangibility of money, because the amount of, and I'll leave all the brands out of it, but the amount of digital money movement that was going on between my friends, the kids, somebody bought something, and well, I'm going to, I'm going to verb you the money, right? right? It was irritating to you. It, it was irritating because it's just, it's a continuation of this lack of connection. Yeah. Absolutely. What I love about this episode is that it really has nothing to do with the value of a dollar, the value of money. What we're trying to do in the vein of what we do at Financial Sobriety is challenge conventional thinking and have conversations you weren't expecting. Well, this is definitely going to do that. Yes, because it's not about the value of a dollar as you think. It has to do with this concept of the tangibility of, of money. money. Here we go. Teach your children well, their father's hell did slowly go by, and feed them on your dreams, the one they picks, the one you'll know by. That sounds familiar. It should sound familiar. So in 1970, Graham Nash wrote the song, Teach Your Children. His struggles with his own father inspired him to produce a piece of music that evokes real emotion for almost everyone who hears it. Nash said this about his song, quote, the idea is that you write something so personal that every single person on the planet can relate to it. Once it's there on vinyl, it unfolds outwards so that it applies to almost any situation, end quote. That's actually the opening to the chapter that I wrote in my book on page 61, Teach Your Children, which we spent lots of time talking about in the last episode. 
But just thank you, Graham Nash, for writing this song, because it, it so inspired me as a father to be able to heal from some of the past mistakes that I had made and be able to be that kind of father who could write something so personal and in this book and in this podcast and what we're doing, create something so personal and so vulnerable that once it unfolds outwards, it can apply to so many different situations, specifically how you and I have packaged this in these three very complicated relationships we all have. There's a timelessness to that song and those lyrics that 51 years later rings true like I can't even believe. Yeah. Because I, I find myself in my relationship with my parents getting caught up in a lot of the lyrics of that song in terms of how busy, 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 busy I am and how I desperately would like to spend time with my parents and my kids, but I'm kind of pulled to my kids. Sure. Well, there's that other song that, I mean, oh. every time I hear that song, it oh. just rips my heartstrings Big out, time. and I'm, like, hysterically well, and I crying. Get those, I get those songs a little bit melded in my head together. Well, they're very similar, and they were written in a very similar time, and the whole essence of the song is is the idea of, here's this perspective of a dad wishing he had more time with his child, being able to do the things with his child that he wants, and then all of a sudden this child grows up, right? The kid wants his dad to come on. Come on, dad, come play ball with me. Sorry, kid. I got, a lot, I got a lot to do. Maybe next time. Right. And then my child turns 10 the other day, and then he grows up and he becomes this man. You're, you're the man I've always wanted you to be. And all I want for you is to come spend time with me. And gosh, I'd love to, Dad, if I could only find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle and the kid's got the flu, but it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. Right? And I'm just just, sitting here getting the chills just just saying those lyrics. Because we're 50 and we've got older parents and we've got kids that are doing that. So those two songs just, I've always been attracted to timelessness. Yes. That I've always been attracted to this concept of something that can withstand the test of time and it is still relevant 50 years later. Yes. God bless Graham Nash and you for writing the book and putting it on print. Well, let's dedicate our last episode and this episode, and I I would even nominate the entire podcast show, let's dedicate this to our children and to being the kinds of fathers that we've always wanted to be. I appreciate what you've shown me and the leadership that you've shown me to allow me to grow into the kind of father that I want to be. And this becomes a legacy that our children can always go back to and, you know, hear what we were thinking and feeling and how much we love them and and how our love for them has given us the courage to do some really uncomfortable things to be the best possible parents we could possibly be for them. Part of which is sitting here with these mics talking about very vulnerable things, things that I've been ashamed of in my own life that I've been willing to course correct on. And I think for so many of us, there's an unbelievable gift in that. And that if, you, if you're willing to unpack it a little bit and just turn it around, because Beth and I have experienced this with our own kids, is that we have not spent very much time talking about our struggles, talking about our failures in life. And that Really, at the end of the day, isn't that where the growth happens? Isn't that where they learn? Isn't that where they overcome? Yeah. I mean, I've told the story on the podcast of my dad at 56 years old coming home and and saying he quit his job. And I was 12. 
And my mom is standing at the kitchen sink getting dinner ready. And she dropped the dish and it broke. And I sat there frozen because I didn't, I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. And I've told that story, I hope, a hundred times. I hope to tell it a thousand times. because yeah. Have was, you told your children that oh, story? Oh, yeah, many oh, times. Good, oh, good, yeah. Good. I mean, 56 years old. Not, tw- not 26, not 16. 56. He was starting over. Yeah. There is so much to learn by sharing your mistakes, by sharing your failures and being vulnerable. And my kids can tell our 08 story. Yeah, good. I wasn't sure I, how much they knew about that, if you had been sharing have, some of that I stuff have with shared, your kids. I have shared that with them so many times that I think Emily could probably come on this podcast and tell the story. Do you know how valuable that is that your kids don't see you as this perfect specimen of a human being? Well, I'll tell you, that was a course correction about five years ago, Good. probably when we started hitching wagons, where it's like, you know, honey, we got to talk a little bit about the messy stuff. Yeah. Because I think they see us as these two people that have never really made any missteps or any mistakes or have any heartache or regret over anything, and that's a bag of you-know-what. Oh, yeah. And in our context of being real, right, and so much of what we talk about is is really vulnerable, messy stuff, and the movement that you and I hopefully are starting is this concept of being able to talk about some of these messy things. The human side of life. The human side of life that isn't all the the pretty white picket fences and the daisies in the front yard. It's a mess going on back here that no one wants to talk about. And I think that's in a bigger context. I'm getting rather deep here with you, but that's part of the problem. Absolutely. I was it's all pretty. I was twenty-two years old when cousin Johnny and I were sitting on bar stools at the whiskey bar in Midtown Manhattan, and he told me truths about my dad I never knew. My dad was my hero. He's still my hero, but he's a hero for me now in a much bigger way because of the vulnerability I've seen and the missteps and the not-so-perfect Hank Grishman that exists in the world. But until I was 22 years old, he was the guy that could do anything, fix anything. He had the answer for everything. He was perfect. And I had him up on this pedestal. I would even say he was my higher power at that point in my life. If there was anything that I looked up to as some superhuman power, it was my dad. I never even saw him shed a tear. He was perfect. He was invulnerable. He was not someone who made mistakes in life until that day when I was 22 and cousin Johnny was a little overserved that day and decided to share some stories about some of the financial disasters and some of the decisions and some of the stuff within my rela- the relationship my parents had that weren't always so rosy, and it crushed me. To the point that I struggled in my relationship with my dad for a couple of years because of this fall from grace. And so that's something that I've always felt that was really, really important, especially as I've started to right the ship on these behaviors with my children, is allowing that vulnerability and allowing them to see that I'm not a perfect person, but part of being an imperfect person who makes mistakes on a daily basis is part of that five to thrive stuff that you and I always talk about, right? The, these principles that we try to live by to maintain trust in our relationships, and that fifth principle of five to thrive, where we own our mistakes and we fix them, is such an important thing for our children to see, to get that realistic sense of who their parents are as human beings. As a result of seeing that in my dad, of opening up to seeing that. Well, that era was all about strength. Yes. I've often thought of my dad as a piece of titanium, a piece of steel. Yeah. In that same context of could do anything, he was impenetrable. 
never said to you, I don't know. It always had the answer. Yeah. And that era of parent, of, forgive this demarcation, but of men, was strength. Strong like bull. Strong like bull. I crush you. That's part of the evolution in some of this is that vulnerability is the new strength. Right. And I love the story that you tell about the conversation you had with your dad on vacation on, you know, Dad, I'm going to start telling the truth. I'm going to start telling the world my story of what a train wreck I was with money. He was so scared for me. Yeah. And, Be- I, and because, I appreciate and, and, that. And that's what he knew. He knew in his experience that it was about strength. It wasn't about vulnerability. And God bless him for embracing you in that process and eventually getting to the point where he can see now. He can see how that vulnerability is extraordinarily healthy and extraordinarily attractive. Right. Well, he's seen how I've healed in my own life by doing it. Selfishly, this vulnerability and telling my truth and unpacking my pack has allowed me to live better, to live happier, to feel free, to have freedom in my life for the first time, because I'm not weighted down by all this negativity that I know about myself to be true by sharing it, by talking about it, by connecting with other people who've had similar experiences and not feeling like I'm you know, on the island with Wilson all by myself. Right. It's just, it's allowed me to flourish. It's allowed me to have greater impact in people's lives, which in turn has created this business for us and this way of life that is helping people and creating wealth for our own families in a way that is so selfless in nature. It just, we give and somehow the karma in the world brings back to us. And he sees that. Yeah. And I think he's happy for me as a result of that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Let's continue the conversation. I think in this last couple of episodes, graduation, halftime, teaching our children, I want to get a little bit more specific in this relationship with money. And being able to, again, I had some of those regrets about wishing that I had taught my children a little bit more responsibility and finance at a younger age. But But they got—come on. They got that in school. Did they? They, Of course. All kids— Oh, I missed that class. No, no, no. All kids have a very strenuous, very in-depth, very real training program through school that they have about money. So you you didn't miss anything. What do they call that class? Because I never really saw it on their report card. Because that would have been something my children would have gotten A's in, for sure. I didn't, I didn't see the class on the report card. What's it called? I don't know. Oh. It doesn't exist. Oh, look at you being all coy. Yeah. Bait the trap. <laughs> Lob- the, lobster's, the, in, the lobster's, lobster's in and he can't get out. Lobster's in the trap, can't get out. Yeah. So this is one of my great struggles. This is one of my great passions, is teaching children the concept of money. Which is a great time with high school graduation, college graduation. It doesn't exist. Right. We throw them into the deep end of the pool, expecting them to be able to learn how to swim, and they've never seen a swimmer. And if they have, it's been from their parents who, God bless them, they never had any training with money. Right. Because their parents never had any training with money. Yeah. So to me, this is one of the greatest things that we can try to help and put out there are some basics, some concepts that you and I have learned that I've had the privilege of sitting with, I wouldn't say a hundred, but certainly dozens of clients, children, as they've grown, where we start to have those early money conversations. Yeah. Well, and, and this has given me a little bit of grace, too, in that as bad as I felt about not teaching my children this stuff at a younger age, 
when I look back and reflect, I did tell them all the right things, but how do our children learn? How do our children actually, how do children actually learn from their parents? Is it what their parents tell them or is it what their parents show them? Aha. Cue the aha music. Yeah, because I, part of my frustration was, wait a minute, I told my children the importance of good financial sobriety, good fiscal responsibility, right? Pay yourself first and don't run up credit card debt and save your money, don't spend your money. But what were they watching me do? They were hearing me say one thing, but they were watching me do something else. So I really had to give myself a little bit of grace and, and recognize that although I said all the right things, ultimately my children learned through my behaviors. They're paying attention to what I do, not what I say. Yeah. We were going to talk about this a little bit in the last episode, and I think it's appropriate to say it now. It's why the only three things I really say to my children now are, I love you, I'm proud of you, or I believe in you, or a combination of all three of those, because those are things they actually hear from me. Sure. Everything else I share with them or say with them comes out in the form of a question. Right. But when it comes to money, until I was able to really own my mistakes— and start fixing those mistakes, and they watch me through that process. That was really the first thing that I was able to teach my children through my example, was that when we make financial mistakes, we have to own them and fix them and not blame other people for them. Sure. Or blame institutions for them. Like sure. Like when I owed the IRS a ton of money because I took a little money out of my 401k, and I knew that I was going to pay that money back. I was so confident business was going to take off. I didn't withhold taxes and penalties. Well, and you got, the, you got that tree in the backyard. I, I got mean, the, that, the money tree, right, yeah. where, where I can just grow money you in go, the backyard. Yeah, you pluck it off when, whenever you want. Year-round tree, right, annual tree. Well, that mistake of taking money out of my 401k and not withholding for taxes cost me greatly, and my children had to watch me dig out of that hole by getting in a very painful payoff plan with the IRS. Thankfully, they got to see me go through that pain. They got to see me own and fix that mistake and then come out the other side with this greater sense of confidence that I got that monkey off my back. Amen. That was the very first thing I was able to teach my children. I, I write about it in the book, in that chapter on Teach Your Children that starts on page 61, that probably one of the most valuable things that parents can teach their children through action is how to own those financial mistakes and fix them. And in fixing them, we learn from them and we make better decisions going forward. Probably the most valuable starting point for parents to teach their children. Be willing to be vulnerable to your children. Yeah, tell them some stories of how you've made mistakes, right? I mean, you and I have talked about this concept of when our girls were in middle school, early high school, instead of buying their clothes and giving them an allowance and what have you, we gave them a set amount of money on a quarterly basis. And the very first time we did that, I was down in our playroom, and we have a computer in there. And Emily, I'm going to guess Emily was about 13 or 14. And she goes, hey, Dad, come here. Come here. You got to check this out. I'm like, what? what? What's so? No, just come here. You got to see this. And she was on the Nike website. And she had tricked out a pair of custom Nikes. <laughs> oh, boy. And I was like, wow, those are really cool. She said, I'm, I'm buying them. I'm like, you are? Oh, wow. Okay. Like with, you know, birthday money or something? or what? You, no, no, no. The money you give us quarterly, you know, that's our, that's for, you know, clothes and Jamba custom, Juice and custom whatever. Custom Nikes. And I guess in this case, custom Nikes. Well, wasn't that a beautiful opportunity to be a consultant and zip my lip and go, how much are they? Oh, I don't, I don't know, but they're a lot less than what, you know, what you gave us for the quarter. 
Well, the misery, and I use that word intentionally, the misery she felt for the rest of the quarter, not being able to do anything with her friends, go to Noah's Bagels, go to Jamba Juice, go to whatever, go to a movie, because she blew it all on these shoes. So she had some really cool shoes, but she could really only wear them around the around house. Around the house. So the, actually, I used to joke with her that they were slippers. <laughs> They're the nicest slippers how are she'll your, ever How own. are your custom slippers, right? <laughs> and when I do that today, she gets this look in her eye like, oh, don't you do that again. Yeah, that's a good but question, those, though. But those, there's so much value in that. And, the, and part of the story, it was $300 a quarter. But wouldn't you rather have them make mistakes with $300? Then with $3,000? Absolutely. $30,000? Absolutely. $300,000. As someone who's made a mistake with those kinds of dollars, yes. $3 million, right? So that's part of it as we go back and and talk about that consultant role or that coach role is to just find the teaching moment. And ask questions. Yeah. And then let them go make their mistake. Yeah. That's beautiful. Let's go back a little bit. What I'd love to hear more about and... I'm sandbagging a little bit because I kind of know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. How did you start really teaching Emily in a situation like that where $300 for a pair of Nikes? Because I assume she was buying them online. Uh, she bought them online, and they were almost $200 by the time she did the—you know, she didn't know about taxes. Uh, she didn't know about shipping. And so they came in at about $200, and so she had about $100 left for the remaining 90, 89 days. So she never actually had to touch money and hand anybody money to make that transaction happen. Oh, it was one yes, of those nice little, nice little seamless Beep. online transactions, kind of like going into the casino, Swipe. right? I can bet $100 on a king and a queen because it's a little black chip and it's not really $100. There's brilliance in that right there. Oh, the casinos, the credit card industry, the whole online shopping industry is Come on. brilliant. Come on, let's go to let's go to Mickey D's. We could use our phone to buy our Mickey D's Big Mac fries and a shake. It used to be, I think it's about ten years now, and don't hang me on this, but it used to be a cash only. They never had a credit component. And they did a trial in some of their stores, and I forget the statistics exactly, but it was somewhere around like a 15 to 25% bigger ticket when somebody bought with plastic with plastic versus actual dollars versus actual dollars okay so now let's slow that down and talk about why that is because it's easy right today i went to starbucks on my way up here to get a coffee and a breakfast sandwich and all i had to do was take out my credit card i didn't even have to Swipe it. That you know how exhausting it is to swipe a credit it card. It is. It is. The, the forearms get sore. Have, or or the absolute angle that you have to exert yourself to put the credit card in the in the bottom. Now you just got to tap it. I just had to tap it. Boop. All the the relief that I felt by just having to tap it. Okay, I'm being a smarty pants. I realize that. I'm Wes Gebhardt's son. I can't help but like cash. My dad was a contractor. There weren't credit cards back then, so he had a wad of cash in his pocket because he'd show up on a job. His employees didn't have, his, his laborers didn't have credit cards to go to the hardware store because they needed a new extension cord or a saw blade or a cooler or Gatorade or whatever it was. So there was always cash. Yeah. So I've always grown up with having cash in my pocket. Yeah. Don't ask me how or why I did this, but my very first job out of school, I worked for an insurance company called Aetna. Uh, Aetna, glad I met you. <laughs> was, was their tagline... <laughs> Back in the day. Very cute. And my first paycheck, net of tax, which we're going to come back to taxes in a second, 
was around, I seem to remember it was around $1,200, $1,400. I wish, I wish I, and if Beth was listening, she would know my sentimentality around keeping random pieces of paper like that. I wish I had that paycheck. I'm sure you have that pay stub somewhere. I'm sure it's in my posterity box. Yeah. Well, I went to the bank and I cashed a check. And this is the same advice I've given to 100 kids since then, is when you get that first job, we have lost all attachment to physical currency. That's not an accident. That is absolutely by design. We are, as consumers, trying to get away from the actual physical attachment to money. So we are desensitized to feeling cash in our hand. Why, at 23 years old, I had any foresight to go to the bank and cash the check? I had never had $1,200. I got $100 bills because I like them. Oh, $100 bills are lovely. I like them. I like to tell when I go to the bank that I tell the, the nice person inside, they call those cashiers if you've never been inside a bank, or a teller, I say, I collect them. And they always look at me kind of funny. It's in, I mean, come on, it's me. I'm, I got the clown suit on, but I collect them. So I, I got this $1,200 in my pocket, and I felt a little bit like a gangster, a gangsta. Yeah, you looked it. And I went for a walk around the block. Did you put a rubber band around it? I, w- I should have. <laughs> but $1,200 bills isn't very much. You okay. need a very thin, you, you could use dental floss for that. Yeah. Well, about 10 minutes into the walk, I freaked out that I had all this money in my pocket. And I, I quickly went back to the bank and deposited it. Well, I've, I've had this conversation, like I said, many, many times with clients. And a young lady who's a... Her mom and dad are dear friends and, and clients. She's graduated from college, has a first job. Her first job is at $60,000 a year. Wow. That's uh, $5,000 a month for those keeping track at home. $5,000 a month. She's living with mom and dad. She has very little expenses. And ironically, the company that she was working for was not set up on direct deposit. So she actually got a check for her first paycheck. I said... I couldn't be more excited for you that they, they haven't joined the 21st century with the direct deposit and you have a physical check. And she's like, oh, why is that? I said, because here's your homework assignment. You're going to go to the bank. You're going to cash that check. And she always, she always has, I've been told that it's called a handbag, not a purse. Gotcha. The purse is something you do with your lips. The handbag is where a person keeps their stuff. Gotcha. Go cash the check, but you need to have, you need to have something where you can put it in your on your person. like not It's not going to go in a bag. It's got to go in your pocket. Or you're just going to walk around with it in your hand and clutch it. And she did it. And it was like net of tax. It was like $2,200 $20, or something. I said, get in whatever denominations you want. 50s, 100s, 1s if you want them. I don't care. And she said that was one of the most powerful experiences about money she has ever had. Sure. Because she lasted about 10 minutes. Yeah. And... It was freaking her out that she had all this money. I said, try to go as long as you possibly can. Yeah. And they still weren't set up on the second paycheck, so she did it again, and she made it almost a day. Wow. That's pretty good. So that cash in hand thing is, I'm a big believer in it. Oh, it's well, and I'm so glad you shared that experience. I mean, that was kind of a haphazard experience based on your own experience, and now it's something that anytime a client sends one of their adult children in to see us, this is part of the homework. I good friends of mine, Katie and Ruben, their their son Marcus was a senior in high school last year, and he had been working really hard at Safeway, saving his money, and he had gotten to a point where he had saved $10,000 in a savings account. And, awesome. And he wanted to come see me because he was interested in investing in stock. Sure. So when Marcus came to see me, 
I took a page out of your playbook and I said, okay, here's your first homework assignment. Before we talk about any kind of investment ideas or how to research stock or do anything like that, the very first thing you need to do is how, for, how much money do you have in your bank account now? Well, I have $10,000. Great. When you leave my office, I want you to go to the bank and you're going to withdraw exactly half of what you have in that bank account. Get it in hundreds. So you should have 50 $100 bills in your pocket totaling $5,000. Did all the blood drain out of his face? He was white as a ghost. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, wait, I thought we were going to talk about buying stock. I said, we are. We're getting there. This is step one. I'm not going to tell you any more than I want you to go get that money. I want you to keep it on you for 24 hours. I mandated one full day of being responsible for hanging on to that kind of money. Then I want you to go back to the bank, redeposit the money, and call me, and we're going to talk about your experience. And here's what happened. He did it. He, su he was successful. Wow. Impressive. He called me 24 hours later, and I asked him, how was your experience with that? How'd it go? He said, oh, my God, that was the scariest thing I've ever had to do. What was the takeaway? What did you get from this? He said, well, the, the biggest takeaway I got from this was I really got an appreciation for how hard I had to work to make that money because here I am walking around with all this money in my pocket, and I guess I never really felt how much $5,000 really was, and I got this sense of pride and this sense of responsibility that I worked really hard for this. Wow, Marcus, that's great. How old is the young man? Uh, the young man is now 18. He just graduated high school. Awesome. So I said to Marcus, I said, now, given that new appreciation, how do you feel going forward about your money? What, what are you going to think differently with your money going forward? And this was the word he used. I was blown away. He said, I'm going to be more intentional with my money. <laughs> I said, really, dude? Really? That's my word. Have oh, we talked about this that's... before? He used the word intentional. I said, well, that was the point of the exercise. Because before we start looking at different stock to invest, now recognize, backdrop, what's happening in the stock market. Woo! Cryptocurrency, GameStop, right? Uh, all, all this crazy stuff is happening easy in the money. stock. Easy money. Easy, quick money. Gambling. Yes. Right? It was all gambling that was going on in the stock market. With Marcus being more intentional with his money now, this kind of sets up how he's going to become more intentional with how he spends it how he saves it, and how he invests it. And the idea of gambling in the stock market all of a sudden went away. And now that he had this finer appreciation for how hard he had to work with this money, I knew that when we started giving him the steps to how to research individual companies that were worthy of investing in, he was going to look at it with a much more intentional eye, with an eye that was much more about being an owner in these organizations and a lot less about how I can get rich quick gambling in the stock market. I don't, I don't get how this works. It's kind of like the whole the journaling exercise we talk about when we got all these monkeys in the brain, and there's something that happens when we write it down in the journal that it gets out of us. It's I don't, one of our senses. Yeah, it's I one of our five senses. I don't get how the physics behind that works, and I don't get how the physics behind actually holding money in hand changes our appreciation for what it takes to have that money, but something happens where it creates more intentionality. And it's probably one of the greatest gifts you can give your children is when they get that first job, when they get that check from grandma for their birthday, is actually having them cash that check and walk around with that money in their pocket and be responsible for it, knowing there's a risk they could lose it. 
My experience has been in the couple of dozen children I've done this with, they don't lose the money. They don't spend the money. They are petrified of having that money in their pocket and learn a finer appreciation for what it takes to have that money. What's the largest amount of cash you've ever had in your hand? Oh, boy. $12,000. Seriously? In my hand. $12,000? Yes. Yes. Wow. That is a much... I mean, before I asked you the question, I was asking myself the question. And I don't know. I, I, I think it's maybe in the $3,000 range, three dollars $4,000. You remember this. It was way back early on in our relationship. When you bought the Crown Vic. When I bought the Crown Vic. Yeah. And you made the suggestion to me. Of course I did. Pay them in cash. <laughs> Put the cash in your hand. The, the, well, you had me on my journey of financial sobriety that we had no idea was my journey of financial sobriety, right? We were making this thing up as we went. I was your guinea pig. Well, thank goodness I don't remember that. Yeah. Well, you said, go take the money out in cash, go buy the car in cash. And there was something and about it to him. And there was something about that exercise that was like, holy cow, this is a lot of money. We should talk about that. I better be getting something in exchange for this money. And sure enough, I did. I got a great used car that lasted me a very, very long time. Thank you for reminding me of that story. Yeah. That it was something I said a long time ago. Well, it was because of your experience cashing that Aetna paycheck. It also reminds me of what I affectionately refer to as the trade-in program. So since we're talking about cars, we have a trade-in program in our house. Oh, do tell. And that is when you when you collect the game pieces to get to $100, doesn't matter. They can be ones, fives, tens, twenties. Now I remember. Fifties. Yep. The trade-in program is, I'll give you a $100 bill. Yep. So this is many years ago. Jack was probably seven or eight, and I'm walking by his bedroom and he's on his hands and knees, and he's doing something like on his bed. Of course, I'm in a hurry. But then I stopped, and I backtracked, and I'm like, hey, bud, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just counting my money. <laughs> That's awesome. I was, Seriously. He's like, yeah, I'm getting ready for a trade-in. Nice. So I go into the bedroom. He's got his, you know, his money's all out on his bed, and they're like little, like little soldiers, right? These little Ben Franklins. One, two, there were seven of them. And he had another little wad of money. And I said, well, how, how close are you? And he's like, oh, I'm at 82 bucks. Cool. You are almost ready for another $100 bill. Why do I tell this story? I don't know. Why do you tell this story? People Dude. don't spend $100 bills. There's something goofy. There's something that happens. And, and I, I shouldn't say people. My children don't spend $100 bills. I was going to say, stores don't have change for $100 bills. That's why they don't use them. Right. And that's why I like them. <laughs> And the kids, the you know, the, all of our kids, over time, they'd be like, oh, Dad, we got to go to the bank. I've got $700. I've got $800, whatever it is, because they don't spend them. Yeah. So if you're listening to this and you're an adult, I would ask you, here's your homework assignment. What is the largest amount of cash you've ever had in your hand? Give it some serious thought and then go push the envelope. Go go, go, to, go to the bank. Go walk around with some cash in your pocket. Go walk around with Two, three, four, five thousand dollars in your pocket in cashola, in your pocket, not in your handbag, not in your wallet. Or your man bag. Or your man bag, whatever it is. It's gotta be in your person. And I assure you, you will probably clutch it the entire time you're holding on to it. Well, and that just that gives you the experience to be able to teach your children, not by telling them, but by showing them. Right. Right. And I don't think you and I could have taught other children how to do this without actually experiencing it for ourselves. Proud Papa moment is now Lucas, my 17-year-old, he walks around and buys things with cash. He doesn't use his debit card. 
he will go to the bank, withdraw cash, and then actually use that cash to do whatever it is he wants to do. And there's just something about him being more intentional with his money as a result of that. And that's purely from him seeing that in my own actions, the fact that I now carry cash and use cash and don't swipe as often as I used to. I took Lucas out for sushi. We had a lovely time. Amy's on the East Coast. Miles was working. Lucas and I decided to treat ourselves last Friday night to a little sushi at our little favorite sushi place near the office, and I paid for the dinner with cash. So just him seeing that example continues to reinforce it just it becomes a much more intentional use of money. Again, I don't get the psychology behind it. And frankly, I don't have to. I don't care. All I know is that when I use cash, I am much more intentional about the use of that money. And I'm now seeing it in the children that you and I have been exposed to that come to us for this guidance. It's wonderful. I think there are a lot of different tools, lots more that come from this conversation about how we can teach our children about money. I think we got a great start on that today, just talking about the idea of cash, of owning our mistakes, fixing them, and, and how we can create this tangible relationship with money that allows for a much more intentional use of that money. And I, having that dialogue with your children. Absolutely. Right? Your own mistakes with it, your own experience with it. It's something you could do with them, right? You could both go to the bank, take out some cash, go through it together. And talk about that experience and, and what were what does it feel like? What were the emotions that came up with it? Was it good? Was it bad? Was it, you know, none of them are really good or bad. It just is. I think we got a lot more to talk about. There's a lot more opportunities to teach children about financial sobriety, about being good stewards of their finances at a young age, whether we're still in cop mode, whether we're in coach mode, whether we're in consultant mode. I think we've done enough work for today, but we've got lots more to talk about when it comes to helping kids with credit, helping kids with that that first job that they get, how to manage a little bit of a of a balance sheet. I think we got a lot more to talk about, partner. It may be summertime, but class is in session. And with that, that's a wrap. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and be sure to subscribe. And check out our website, yourfinancialsobriety.com. Thanks again for listening today here to help you find more clarity, confidence, and capability along your journey into financial sobriety. I'm Matthew Grishman. And I'm Jim Gebhardt. Be intentional with your money. Jim Gebhardt is a registered representative of and securities offered through Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, member SIPC. Jim Gebhardt and Matthew Grishman are investment advisor representatives of Gebhardt Group Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Brokers International Financial Services, LLC, and Gebhardt Group Incorporated are not affiliated. The opinions in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or investment recommendations. To determine which investments or financial advice may be appropriate for you, consult a financial advisor prior to investing. Any reference to market performance is based on historical information and there is no expressed or implied guarantee of future performance. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Brokers International Financial Services, LLC. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Gebhardt Group Incorporated does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance.